Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. I'm going to read it, and then we'll get to work. It says, Now the birth of Jesus took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband, Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet when he said, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but he knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we, it's such a, uh, uh, an exciting and, and a, a blessed time of year to consider your birth, your arrival into our world, into human history to come and save us, right? Um, Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners, and we are grateful that you have done that. We pray that as we meditate on that reality this morning, Lord, that you would Speak to us and encourage our hearts and bless us. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. All right, verse 18. The birth of Jesus took place in this way. His mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, and before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Mary and Joseph are betrothed, another word for engaged, but engagement or betrothal in the first century looked, um, looked a lot different than, than how engagement uh, how we understand engagement today. Um, might not sound super romantic, but engagements today are easy come, easy go um, compared to engagement in the first century. Um, you know, sometimes the guy will ask the girl's father for permission. Uh, you know, sometimes, I know guys who haven't, sometimes guys will do some big fancy, you know, scavenger hunt or party and invite the girl's friends from childhood or whatever. Sometimes they won't. Most guys will get a ring. I know guys who've gotten engaged without giving the girl a a ring at all. And so there's not really any rules about how to get engaged or what engagement uh, is going to to look like. In the first century, uh, it was, the bar was not that low. In the first century, engagement was probably closer to how we understand marriage than how we understand engagement. There was paperwork, it was a lengthy process, official arrangements, a prenuptial agreement, there had to be witnesses. It was a, engagement in the first century was a legally binding contract. The bar for getting engaged was much higher than our bar is today, and the bar for ending an engagement was much higher in the first century than it is for us today. And if you uh, again, easy come, easy go. If you want to break your engagement today, you just do it and just kind of go your, go your separate ways. If it's early enough, you don't even, you know, if you haven't set a date or sent out invitations, you don't even need to do anything. You just kind of go and, uh, and just be, be done with it. Or if you have sent out invitations, maybe you send out a little note or something. Or Worst case scenario, if you're going to break up an engagement, you leave the person at the altar 
it's expensive and it's embarrassing, but like, you're not going to go to jail, right? Like you just, it's just a, it's just a thing that, that happened. It's less than, than ideal. Breaking off an engagement in today's culture is not that hard. I should know because it happened to me. I'm married now, but 10 years ago I was engaged to a girl and she broke off the engagement with me. She didn't have to hire a lawyer. We didn't have to get a judge to certify it. We just went our, our separate ways. Marriage in the first century, again, a binding covenant commitment. And if you wanted to end an engagement in the first century, you had to get a divorce. You had to get uh, legal paperwork involved. The engagements in the first century were about a year long. Not, so engagements in today are about a year long, but mostly that's because people want to plan a big extravagant wedding and they have to pick the place and they have to get all of the, the flowers and the photographer and everything has to kind of line up and you need about a year to make that happen. Engagements were about a year long in the first century more or less, to uh, establish the paternity of any potential future children. So an engagement would be about a year long so that they could make sure that the woman was not pregnant already before they got engaged so that they could make sure that uh, if they have any children, they know that it's the husband's and not someone else's. So Mary and Joseph are in the middle of this year-long binding covenant engagement period the entire point of which is so that Mary can emerge on the other side of it, not pregnant. And then she gets pregnant right in the middle of it, which is super awkward. There's a lot of things that you can explain away. A lot of things that are embarrassing, right? If you, you know, have to declare bankruptcy, you can say, you know, I was the victim of identity theft. Or... If something weird, if something embarrassing or inappropriate shows up in your mail or a package at your house, you can say, I didn't order it, someone must be pranking me. You can't really explain away uh, a, a pregnancy. If you're, if you're pregnant, you can't really say, I don't know how it happened. Uh, it was either something that you did or something that was done to you, but you can't uh, exactly claim to not know how it happened. So it's super embarrassing. It's super awkward. And Mary says to Joseph, I don't know how it happened. I didn't sleep with anyone. I am just as surprised by this as you are. And Joseph, of course, is thinking that's not possible, right? What do you, what do you take me for, a, a fool? Um, you, know, you can't, you, have, you should at least come up with a better excuse than that. You can't tell me that you became pregnant through this biological impossibility that you were never with another uh, person uh, and expect me to believe it. And so verse 19, Joseph uh, is not going to stay with Mary. He's going to divorce her. And her husband, Joseph, and so, yeah, again, uh, engagement in the first century was so uh, binding and so serious and so weighty that they would refer to one another as their husband and, and wife, um, despite the fact that the actual marriage ceremony and the actual consummating of the marriage would, would not come till, till later. So her husband, Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. So what's not on the table for Joseph at all is staying with Mary. She's cheated on me. She's treated me like an idiot. She's claimed that she's never slept with anyone else, but obviously she has. I'm not buying it, so I'm definitely not going to stay with her. As far as Joseph's concerned, he has two options. I can divorce her loudly, or I can divorce her quietly, right? I can, I can make a big deal out of it. I can, I can tell all my friends. I can say, I can run her reputation through the mud. Look how bad of a person she is. Look what she did uh, to me. No one else should ever be with her. Or I can divorce her quietly. I can 
you know, um, not make a big deal out of it. I can kind of be, uh, be kind and, and discreet about it. But what, I've, what I'm not going to do is marry Mary. I'm not going to stay in a relationship with this woman that has been unfaithful to me. So Joseph is a just man. He's a godly man. He's a righteous man. And so uh, given those two options, he says, I'm going to divorce her quietly rather than loudly, rather than embarrassingly. There are different thoughts on divorce uh, in first century Israel. Um, we looked at this when the religious leaders asked Jesus about divorce in the Gospel of Luke. Um, but they all kind of stem from a verse in Deuteronomy 24, which I think we might have. This is the first part of the verse because it goes on to talk about a specific scenario that happens as the result of this. But this is kind of the preliminary, uh, kind of the setup for the, for the scenario that it's talking about. It says, when a man takes his wife and marries her, and if, he finds no fav- if she finds no favor in his eyes because of some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, and then he goes on to kind of finish the thought, if that happens, when that happens, then if this happens, here's how you should kind of respond. But, but uh, you know, scholars in the first century would look at that and think, okay, well, uh, since Moses assumes, like, since he says that as the setup for what he's talking about in Deuteronomy 24, we can assume that it is appropriate and that God uh, is okay with a man divorcing his wife uh, if he's found some indecency in her. And the question that all of the scholars debated was, what does that mean? What does it mean for a husband to find some indecency in his wife? Very, very rarely. In fact, probably never would the divorce go the other way where a woman would divorce her husband. Because like I said, women were extremely vulnerable and in a very precarious position without a husband. Someone to provide for them and protect them and take care of them. Husbands, on the other hand, if they divorced their wife, they could work for themselves, take care of themselves. They couldn't have a male child, which was a big part of their culture. I need to have a male child to carry on my family line and someone to give my property to as inheritance. So men needed women for that, but... Uh, men could just find other women, but women uh, were in particular very vulnerable if they were either not married or if, they, if their husband divorced him. So a lot was riding on how do we interpret the word indecency? What does that mean? There's like different schools of thought, di- different rabbis. Let's see here. Um, yeah, there was a school of Hillel. They were like, uh, you know, super chill about it, right? They they basically said, you know, men are, uh, you know, the word indecency is a big, broad umbrella that can include anything and everything, right? Uh, uh, there people in the school of Hillel said that a husband could divorce his wife for virtually any reason. Anything that he just doesn't like about her qualifies as indecency. If, literally, they would say if she burns the dinner, then that would qualify as indecency and he can divorce her, send her away. If he finds another woman that he thinks is more attractive than her, then that qualifies as an indecency in his first wife. He can write her a certificate of divorce and send her away. The school of Hillel was pretty, uh, they, they, were, they didn't really care much about women and about the, the destitution and the poverty that would come on a woman who is sent away from her husband. So they kind of said, carte blanche men to send women away. The school of, um, let's see, the school of Shammai, they're super firm. They're like the traditional family values people. So they're like anti-divorce, you know, but what they do is they say a man may not divorce his wife unless he has found uh, unchastity in her. So they say indecency means 
adultery, like verifiable evidence of adultery. That's the only way that a man can divorce his, his wife. But everyone, no matter who you are, no matter, no matter if you're in the Hillel school that's like kind of progressive and, and kind of allowing for men to kind of do whatever they want, or if you're in the Shammai school that's very traditional and rigorous and won't allow for marriages to be broken up unless there's, there's evidence, no matter who it is, everyone would say that Joseph at this moment is well within his rights to divorce Mary. That's the whole point of engagement. The whole point of engagement was make sure she doesn't get pregnant in the middle of it. If she does, he can divorce her. If she doesn't, then they should get married uh, at the end of their engagement. So no one would be telling Joseph, you should stay with Mary. Everyone would be telling him, the whole point of this is so that you can, can leave her. She has, has forfeited the right to have you as her husband. So leave her loudly, leave her quietly, it doesn't matter, but don't stay with her. I mean, even Jesus himself, Mary's son, Joseph's adopted son, uh, when he's talking about divorce and remarriage in Matthew 19, he says, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality, if anyone divorces his wife and marries someone else, he commits adultery. So anyone who divorces his wife, that constitutes adultery, it's inappropriate, you shouldn't do it except in the extenuating circumstances of adultery. In that case, it is uh, justified. It's, it's permissible. No one is telling Joseph that he should be staying with Mary. Everyone is saying that you can. Most people are probably going further to say, not only, not only it's that you can leave Mary, but you should leave Mary. Right? Divorce would be the wise option. It would be the godly option. Right? Divorce would be the, the option where you're thinking about your future. Marrying, marrying Mary would be like turning a blind eye to scandalous sin. Right? She's thrown her life away. And if you marry her, you'll be throwing your life away too. Right? Marrying Mary would be wrong. That's the kind of behavior that we would expect from pagans and Gentiles and people from the other nations. But people in this country who care about God and about righteousness and about sexual morality, they would never marry someone like Mary. So Joseph is going to divorce Mary. He's going to, going to leave her. And he resolves to do it quietly because he's a just and a godly and a good man. Verse 20, but as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, that's King David, we see in the Old Testament, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. You may be under the impression that this uh, child in her womb is uh, because she's been unfaithful to you. I'm telling you that it's not. I'm telling you that you... Uh, that you don't necessarily need to divorce her. You don't, not, you don't need to be afraid of taking Mary for your wife because she has not been unfaithful to you. You're more than welcome, should you desire to do so, you're more than welcome to marry her, raise the child, because the, the child's father is not some random guy that Mary cheated on you with. Mary was a virgin, Mary is a virgin, and she's pregnant because God put this child in her womb specially and not because she was, was unfaithful. This is the doctrine of the virgin birth. Which is a crucial doctrine of the Christian faith. Maybe we overlook it today, how important it is. But people have like fought and died and bled for the doctrine of the virgin birth. In the, in the 19th and 20th centuries, 
the church saw the rise in academia of what's known as higher criticism. Uh, you know, European, uh, mostly German, uh, liberal Protestantism, uh, where these, these kind of academics and, you know, college professors, they kind of went on what they called the quest for the historical Jesus, the historical truth about who Jesus is. So they kind of, in, in academic circles and in colleges, they kind of said, all right, uh, the church has really uh, done a number on who Jesus is. Right? And they, they have imported all of these religious, all of these fantastic, all of these mythical understandings about who Jesus is. We're going to get past all that stuff and we're going to figure out who Jesus actually really was. Their, they, their job, as they coined it, was to say that uh, they want to distinguish the historical Jesus from the Christ of faith. Hist- Jesus of history, Christ of faith. We want to get rid of the Christ of faith and see the Jesus of history. And basically all they did happened in the, you know, 18th, 19th, 20th century, but the main, the, the, the main uh, thrust of the higher criticism movement was to just take anything in the Bible that appears supernatural and just throw it out. So miracles, throw them out. Uh, you know, death, for, death on the cross to atone for sin, throw it out. Res, bodily resurrection, throw it, it out. And so you're kind of left with this husk of what used to be the Bible and what used to be the Word of God that they've kind of said, anything that's, that's supernatural or that we think is implausible or improbable, it's gone. That's higher criticism in, in Europe uh, in the 19th and 20th centuries. The response to that is something that we still uh, know of today. We can still feel the, the you know, reverberations of today, which is called fundamentalism. If, you, if you, someone identifies as or if they are called a fundamentalist by someone else, what you're actually saying is you are kind of uh, in the line of the fundamentalist movement that started in the 19th, 20th century as a, a reaction against, as the, the opposite of higher criticism. And so fundamentalist Christianity, they're saying, all right, all the higher critics are like throwing away all the parts of the Bible. We want to establish firmly what the fundamentals of the faith are. We're going to hold on to them and no one can get rid of them. These are the fundamentals of the Christian faith. And they came up with five of them. Uh, One, the Bible is inspired. It's perfect. The Bible is not, uh, you know, a creation of man. It was written by God. So one, the Bible is inspired. Two, Jesus performed miracles. They're like, if you're going to say Jesus didn't perform miracles, we're going to say he did. That's a fundamental. Three, Jesus died on the cross for our sins, right? You're going to say that Jesus' death on the cross was something other than uh, a spiritual thing that happened between God the Father and God the Son, wherein God the Son satisfied the wrath of God the Father. That's a fundamental. That's in. Four, Jesus rose bodily from the grave. You're going to say that the resurrection is ridiculous or that the people who thought they saw the risen Christ were crazy or delusional or hallucinating. We're going to say, no, he really did uh, rise bodily from the grave. So the Bible is perfect. Jesus performed miracles. Jesus died on the cross for our sins. Jesus rose bodily from the grave. Four out of the five fundamentals. And the fifth one was the virgin birth of Jesus. They specifically said, this one, we can't lose it. We have to hold on to the virgin birth. It is a fundamental element of the Christian faith and we can't do without it. And here's why the virgin birth is so important. Because the virgin birth establishes the divinity of Christ. Right? The virgin birth says, 
Jesus is not just a regular guy. He's not like any other random religious teacher, some guy who claims to be enlightened but was born under regular circumstances and would go on to die under regular circumstances. Jesus was not just a man. Jesus was God. He didn't come into the world like everyone else did. He came into the world a special way, without a sinful nature, as God. That's why the virgin birth is important is because Jesus is God. The virgin, of, the virgin birth establishes the divinity of Christ. <coughs> there are some denominations that look at the virgin birth and believe it and hold fast to it, rightly so, but then they kind of take the virgin birth and they uh, draw conclusions from it and end up at places that aren't exactly biblical. Some denominations look at the virgin birth and say, since, Joe, since Jesus chose to be born, not as the result of a sexual union, but as the result of a virgin birth, they'll kind of uh, use that to say, uh, we can deduce from that that, that sex of any kind is, is bad. Uh, you know, sex before marriage is bad, which is right and true. Sex outside of marriage is bad which, again, is right and true, but then they'll kind of go as far as to say, we're not even really that sure about sex within marriage. It's like, you can't have kids without it, so I guess you can do it within marriage, but only to have kids. Uh, it's just something that you kind of in, like endure. Like, so priests can't get married. Uh, married couples can't practice birth control because that would imply that there's some other purpose for sex other than having children. And so they kind of get all of that from the virgin birth. They kind of uh, understand that like all sex, including sex within marriages, is uh, bad or, or wrong, or there's, it's just a little bit that makes them uncomfortable, and they kind of unpack that from the doctrine of the virgin birth. The virgin birth, the doctrine of the virgin birth does not teach us that sex within marriage is bad. It teaches us that Jesus was God. That's like the whole, the, the point of the virgin birth is not, not to say that sex with your spouse within marriage is bad. Uh, it's, it's to teach us that Jesus was God. Jesus was not just a regular uh, person. And so this angel comes to Joseph and says, uh, this child that she is pregnant with is not, uh, is not from another person. This child was, was given to her by the Holy Spirit. And then verse 21, she will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. Back in verse 20, he said, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. Almost like you're welcome to divorce her if you'd like, but you should feel free to marry her should you, like you don't need to fear or be afraid of marrying her because she has not been unfaithful to you. But here he kind of raises the raises the bar a little bit. He says, you shall call his name Jesus. It's a directive. It's a, it's a command. So it's more than you can marry Mary and raise her child as your own, but rather you should marry Mary and, and adopt this child and raise him as your own. So she'll bear a son. You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. We see this in Luke, in the birth narrative, and the, the moments leading up to Jesus' birth and after Jesus' birth, and here in Matthew, uh, right from the very outset of Jesus' life, God makes it very clear what he came 
for. He came to save his, you know, Luke 19, uh, the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost, right? Matthew 121, Jesus will save his people from their sins. Jesus was born of a virgin, lived a perfect sinless life, the life that God called you and I to live. Jesus, unlike you and me, at the end of his life, did not deserve to die. Jesus deserved to be welcomed into the presence of God, but at the end of his life, he wasn't. Jesus was killed and slaughtered as a sacrifice for for sin. Jesus was punished and treated as if he had committed your sin, my sin, so that if you trust in Jesus, you can be treated as if you have lived the perfect life of Christ. God will welcome you into his presence, not on the basis of your righteousness, your works, but rather on the basis of Christ's righteousness, Christ's works that have been imputed to you. Jesus will save his people from their sins. And, he chooses his words very carefully. Uh, you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people. Not, not, not Jesus might save his people from their sins. Not Jesus will make the salvation of his people possible. But Jesus will save his people from their sins. He will uh, accomplish the mission that he set out for, which is to secure their salvation. There will be no ambiguity. It's, not, it's, it's irreversible. It's unchangeable. This is what theologians call the doctrine of definite atonement, which means that Jesus on the cross definitively atoned for the sins of his people. He accomplished it. They can't unearn, they can't lose the salvation that Jesus secured for him because he actually saved them. He did not merely render them savable. He actually actively, effectively, finally saved his people. When Jesus is on the cross, he says, it is finished. Which comes from the word tetelestai, which means paid in full. It's the same language that if you're paying off a loan, your mortgage or your car payment, and you make the final payment and they send you a notice that says, it's finished. It's paid in full. There's no more payment that needs for this debt that you owe. That's exactly what Jesus said when he was on the cross. Jesus saved his people definitively without ambiguity or without any sort of uh, gray area in the, in the middle. Jesus will save his people from their sins. And all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. And they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. So Matthew's saying, not only is the virgin birth necessary for the moral theological reasons uh, of establishing the divinity of Christ and establishing that Jesus was born without sin and that Jesus would live a perfect life without sin. Those are all reasons why the virgin birth is indispensable to the Christian faith. But it's also indispensable because uh, the virgin birth vindicates God as being a person who we can take at his word, someone that we can trust, someone who's, whose words come true. If Jesus wasn't born of a virgin, then this prophecy in Isaiah chapter 7 would have effectively gone unfulfilled. 
Isaiah 7, so if you read Isaiah 7, 14 in context, it's a little bit strange, it's a little bit uh, ambiguous, and you might not think at first glance that it applies to the birth of Jesus. In Isaiah 7, uh, Israel is being attacked by foreign nations, and, God, and the, the king of Israel at the time, his name is Ahaz, God comes to Ahaz and says, hey, uh, I, if you call on my name, I will save you from these enemy nations that are threatening you. And Ahaz uh, he says, no, God, I, could, I couldn't possibly do that. I couldn't ask you to, to come to my aid. That far be it from me to call on the name of the Lord. And God says, dude, I'm not like, I wouldn't, I wouldn't have asked you to call on my name and invite me to come save you if I didn't want to come and save you and if I didn't want to come and redeem your people. And, and God says to Ahaz, if, all right, if you're not going to call out to me and call on my name to save you, then I am going to send you a sign. And the sign is, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. And when that happens, right before that little baby grows up, you are going to watch as I defeat and destroy these enemies that are threatening you, and watch as I redeem your people. So Isaiah 7 seems, when you're reading Isaiah 7, and you've never read the New Testament, like it's talking about something that's going to happen in Israel 700 years before Jesus is ever born. And depending on how you read it, you could, I mean, you could read it as saying, um, it's, it may not be talking about a virgin birth, it might be talking about a young woman who's going to conceive and bear a son, or it might be talking about a woman who's a virgin until she uh, you know, gets married and consummates her marriage, and then she conceives and bears a son. It might be talking about someone who's born 700 years before Jesus. It's not really clear. It doesn't become clear until we read in Matthew 1. And then we see that there is a kind of a, a near fulfillment and a far fulfillment for this prophecy in, in Isaiah 7. The near fulfillment is that there's going to be a child. Maybe it's even Isaiah. A lot of scholars think that Isaiah is referring to his own son. Um, but uh, so it, there's this dual fulfillment wherein Isaiah is saying these enemies of Israel are going to be destroyed by God within a few years of when uh, this young child is going to be born who is a sign that God's salvation is coming. That's the near fulfillment in 700 BC. And then in the far sense, Isaiah is saying that down the road, in the future, at some point, there's going to be a virgin who is going to get pregnant, is going to give birth to uh, Emmanuel, which means God with us. When the, uh, in the Septuagint, when, um, when they were translating from Hebrew into Greek, uh, they actually used a word that specifically means virgin right here. So, so some scholars say, oh, Isaiah wasn't talking about a virgin. He was talking about a young woman. But, uh, but when, when, when Matthew is translating this verse from Hebrew into Greek, he uses the word virgin to specifically say, no, Jesus' mother was a virgin when he was conceived. So there's a near sense uh, of kind of telling King Ahaz that God's going to save his people in Israel's history. There's a far sense of saying that the Messiah is coming. It's going to be God. The Messiah is literally going to be Emmanuel, which means God with us. So Emmanuel, El means God. M means with. And in the middle, the middle syllable is kind of a suffix that means us. So Emmanuel, God with us. And this is kind of referring to the doctrine of the incarnation. Right? When God himself... Right, Jesus uh, was, was, was born of a virgin. That's kind of a crucial element of the Christian faith. But the incarnation, which says that Jesus is 
God with us. Jesus is God who has become a man. Incarnation in is, is imminent here with us. And carne means meat or flesh, right? Uh, carne asada steak. Right, so so uh, the in, the doctrine of the incarnation says that God Himself has has come into human flesh. He has put on human flesh and come here to be with us. Jesus is God. Come here. He existed outside of His creation. He entered into His creation. He took humanity and added it to His divinity. So here in verses twenty-two and twenty-three, we kind of see the doctrine of the incarnation. Uh, and we, we see these two kind of fundamental truths about who Jesus is, that he's God and that he's man, right? If Jesus is not God, then he wouldn't be God with us. And if Jesus was not man, then he wouldn't be uh, God with us, right? God with us. God and man. Jesus is fully God, fully man. He's born of a virgin because he's God, but he's born of a woman. He's born of a human because he is a, a man. Jesus is fully God, fully man, possesses all of the attributes and characteristics of divinity, sovereignty, authority over Satan, sin, death. He's perfect in every way, and Jesus is fully man. He's like us. He has emotions and, and intellect and, and kind of the mental capacities of a, of a human being. He can sympathize with us in what we experience. Whatever we are going through, Jesus has been through it, and yet he did it without sinning. So Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. And in verse 40, or 24, it says, When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but he did not know her until she had given birth to a son. So Jesus on, or Joseph, on a dime, adjusts course, right? He says, he says, I had no intention of marrying Mary, but now I am going to, right? Um, I'm, gonna, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to divorce her. I'm going to marry her. But specifically, I'm going to marry her, and I'm not going to finalize the marriage and consummate it until uh, the child is born. Not because, you know, there's anything wrong or inappropriate about uh, sleeping with your wife, but rather because I want to ensure that there's no ambiguity around the virgin birth and the, the divinity of this baby that is in Mary's womb. So Joseph waits until Jesus is born. Uh, he's born, he called him Jesus, and then, they, then Joseph and Mary just kind of have a, a normal marriage and a normal sex life. They have uh, lots of other children together. Uh, we know that Jesus has at least, Matthew 13, Mark 6, make it very clear that Jesus had at least six siblings in total, four brothers and two sisters, maybe more. And so Joseph faithfully waits uh, to consummate his marriage with Mary until Jesus is born, and then he does. And when Jesus is born, it says, Joseph called his name Jesus. So he's not like the stereotypical, disengaged stepfather who happens to like the kid's mother but doesn't really care that much about the kid or doesn't really see any benefit in being a parent to this kid because why would I? It's not my kid anyway. That's the, Joseph adopted Jesus as his own son. Joseph is the one who gives Jesus his name, Jesus, which means God saves his people. Emmanuel, God is with us. Jesus, God saves his people. Uh, 
And, and I want to close just by considering for a moment Joseph and his trajectory, his character development in these few verses. He goes from verses 18 through 19, resolved, decided, I know what I'm going to do. I have a plan. I know where I'm going. My life is all mapped out. I'm going to marry Mary. Wait, no, I'm not because she has been unfaithful to me. I have a plan that's kind of born out of what I understand to be right and what is good. It's what I've been taught since childhood. I've got Bible verses to back it up. As I understand it, this plan that I have written out is God's will for my life. Grow up, work hard, be godly. Don't engage in sexual immorality before you get married. Marry a godly woman who's done the same thing, who's ready to start a family with you, who's going to start your, you're going to have kids together, raise them, disciple them. That's Joseph's plan. Joseph's plan does not include marrying a woman who's, all, who's already pregnant. Far from it. And then God reveals himself to Joseph. God speaks to Joseph. God gives his word to Joseph. And Joseph changes course based on the word of God. Joseph has his plan, his idea, his preferences, his desires, the way that he thinks he's going. And then when God speaks to him, Joseph says, I'm not going to do what I want to do. I'm not going to do what I was originally planning to do. I'm going to do what God has instructed me to do. I'm going to do, I'm going to let God be the ultimate authority, the king in my life. Could have said, no, not going to do it, God. Let Mary go start a family with someone else. That's not in my plan for my life as I have written it out. And this decision to stay with Mary and to adopt Jesus affected Joseph significantly. Joseph was not a wealthy man. We can see in some of the circumstances surrounding the birth of Jesus that he was poor, that he had to avail himself of some special mitigating sacrifice circumstances that were for poor people. Joseph wasn't super wealthy, but Joseph did have a a business, a carpentry business in Nazareth that had likely been handed down to him from his parents for generations. So he had an established, you know, a, a, he had a, a baseline of a, of a comfortable life that he could have. Probably thought well of in his community. When Joseph decides to marry Mary and adopt Jesus, he's going to, what we're going to see uh, in, in the coming weeks, he's going to have to flee to Egypt. King Herod is going to say, I don't want Jesus to make it out of infancy alive. So I want to kill all of the young boys to make sure that I get Jesus because I see him as a threat to my kingship. And Joseph, in order to escape uh, the, the Herod's genocidal edict and in order to save Jesus' life, escapes to go to Egypt. He leaves Nazareth, or he you know, leaves what would be Nazareth where he's going to be a business owner and a pillar in the community, to instead go to Egypt where he is no one. He's a foreigner. He doesn't speak the language. Nobody cares about the fact that Joseph had a carpentry business in Egypt. He has to start at the bottom. He has to be an apprentice and get paid pennies compared to what he would be making from the profits of his carpentry business in Nazareth. It's a significant sacrifice that Joseph invites financially, but also socially. Everyone's going to be questioning whether this kid, I mean, is Joseph some sort of 
idiot loser that he would raise a child that's not his, right? Is Joseph immoral? Is he the father of this child? And he just got his girlfriend pregnant before they got married, right? Joseph had to kind of take on himself all of this social uh, costs. Marrying Mary and adopting Jesus was costly for Joseph in every sense of the word. But he did it anyway. I wonder, how much, I wonder how many of us would do the same thing. I wonder how many of us would hear God's word and allow it to affect our lives so much so that it actually alters the course of our lives. I wanted to do X, now I'm going to do Y. Not because it's better for me, not because it's more convenient, not because it's going to get me more applause from the world, but just because God told me to to do it. God has commanded me in His Word to do Y instead of X, so I'm going to do that. I wonder how many of us would do something other than we originally planned, something other than what our preferences are dictating, Something that's costly and inconvenient and sacrificial just because God has commanded us to do it. That's what Joseph did. He heard the word of God. He received it. He obeyed it. He trusted God. And then he obeyed God. He said, I'm not... I'm not going to be the final arbiter of my life. I'm not going to get the final say. I'm not going to be the king. Jesus is the the king. God is the king. God is the one who tells me what to do. And in particular, what God calls Joseph to do is to love his neighbors at great cost to himself. Two neighbors in particular, Mary and Jesus. And a woman and an unborn child. Both incredibly vulnerable, neither one able to provide for themselves. Both need a defender, a provider, a protector. God calls Joseph to love both of them at great cost to himself. And he does. If you look at the if you look at the landscape of the cultural conversation today. You'll hear people on one side of the aisle advocating for unborn children. As well they should. They're they're human beings. They matter. Their lives matter. We should not slaughter unborn children just because we don't want them. We should not sacrifice unborn children on the altar of convenience. Abortion is wrong. Abortion is murder. Murder is wrong, right? You'll hear that from one side of the aisle, and they are absolutely right. God cares about unborn children. God wants his people to protect unborn children. God calls Joseph to adopt an unborn child because God loves unborn children. Joseph does. On the other side of the aisle, you'll hear people advocating for women. They 
are human beings. Their lives matter. They deserve equal pay. Right? They need safety and security. They need equity in the workplace. They deserve not to be taken advantage of by men and by people who are in positions of power. When women are abused, it matters. When women are exploited, it matters because God loves women. God wants them to be able to live and thrive. And those people are right as well. God cares about women. God called Joseph to protect a woman, and Joseph did. Joseph, Joseph cares more about unborn children than the most outspoken champion of the pro-life cause that you'll ever meet. And Joseph cares more about women than the most outspoken champion of the, the Me Too movement that you will ever meet. And Joseph embodies the heart of God in that way. He loves his neighbor. He loves his female neighbor. He loves the, his unborn children neighbors. And when they need him, he draws near to them and cares for them because God has called him to do that even when it's costly to himself. God's called us to love our neighbors. Women, unborn children, single moms, people experiencing poverty, crisis, homelessness, people with disabilities, right? God has called us to love our neighbors, particularly those who are vulnerable. God has called us to care about them and to love them even when it is costly. God called Joseph to love his neighbors by marrying Mary and adopting Jesus, and he did. God has called you, God has called me to love our neighbors in ways that will likely be costly as well, in ways that will likely be inconvenient as well, in ways that will likely involve changing our plans, changing the course of where we thought our life was going to go as well. Probably doesn't involve marrying a pregnant woman, but it definitely involves something, and it will likely be costly. Joseph did it. God is calling us to do just that. God is calling us to Hear his word, listen to his word, receive his word, just like Joseph did. God is calling us then to trust in him and to obey his word and to love our neighbors, just like Joseph did, even when it's costly and even when it is is convenient. Because of Joseph's sacrificial obedience, Jesus was born into the world. Jesus had a father who raised him. Jesus would ultimately grow up and die on the cross for your sin so that you can be saved and reconciled to God. And now God is calling us in response to do the same thing. To listen to his word, trust him, obey him, and love our neighbors even even when it's costly. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for your grace. We thank you that you came, uh, that, that Jesus came into the world to save sinners. We thank you that, jo- that Joseph was a faithful husband and father. We pray that we could be, could be faithful. We pray that we could hear your word, trust in you, obey you, and love our neighbors like you have called us to do. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.